Welcome to Veterans for Peace radio show. Uh, my name is Mike Diedrich, and with me today is Michael McPherson. We are both members of Chapter 92 in Seattle. We are broad- broadcasting from Codex Radio 96.9 FM, 23rd of June, 2020. Veterans for Peace is a, uh, has a statement of purpose which goes this way. We as military veterans do hereby affirm our greater responsibility to serve the cause of world peace. To this end, we will work with others both nationally and internationally to increase public awareness of the costs of war and the causes, to restrain our governments from intervening overtly and covertly in the internal affairs of other nations, to end the arms race and to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons, to seek justice for veterans and victims of war, to abolish war as an instrument of national policy. To achieve these goals, Veterans for Peace pledged to use nonviolent means and to maintain an organization that is both democratic and open with the understanding that all members are trusted to act in the best interest of the group for the larger purpose of world peace. Today, our program will discuss among other things, the contradictions, conflicts, and liabilities that active duty reservists and National Guard troops faced when used to intervene intervene against civilians exercising their constitutional um, rights. U.S. military swear an enlistment oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Our guests today are James Branham, a practicing attorney and board member of the National Lawyer Guild, and long active, longtime activist of GR rights, and Monika Solhab, who is a Veterans for Peace member and a uh, um, member of the chapter in Albuquerque. Um, my name is Mike Dietrich, as I said, and I'm a Vietnam veteran. Uh, I served in 1968, 67, 68. And Michael, you were. Hey, everybody. Uh, yeah, hello. I'm happy to be on the show. Thanks, Mike. Um, I'm a, a veteran of what they call the Gulf War. Some people call it the first Gulf War, or the Iraq War, first Iraq War. It's the same war that's going on now. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it was the f- first ground and air campaigns. Um, Monique, I know, I've known Monique for some time. I'm happy that she's on the show. I've known her since the Asheville Convention in 2014. Uh, she lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and she's going to give us uh, tell us a little bit about herself, as well as give us a little bit of an update on um, the movement for Black Lives in what's going on in uh, in New Mexico and Albuquerque specifically. And I don't know if you heard about these um, New Mexico Civil Guard, which are civilian militia. Um, I saw that they were being active uh, in the area, so I asked her about that as well. Um, I just want to remind everybody again that we are on KODX, uh, that's 96.9. We broadcast every fourth Wednesday. And you can find our past episodes at KD, excuse me, KODXSeattle.org slash Seattle VFP. This is actually our sixth show, and I'm pretty excited that, you know, we've got six shows under our belt. Yeah, it's kind of amazing, actually. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah. And, and like, um, uh, like, go ahead. Like, yeah, just like you said, we're going to talk to James. Um, and, um, you know, we pre recorded these because of the uh, virus. 
So uh, Mike's going to mention um, a ad that the local chapter put in the um, Joint Base Lewis McCord Ranger, as well as the Airlifter, which is the really the um, McCord um, paper. Um, and you can find that ad, uh, w- which is like a poster like ad, uh, calling on um, the soldiers and the guardsmen to follow their conscience. Um, you can follow that, find that ad, I should say, at vfp92.org. And there's an um, a article called Follow Your Conscience, but you'll find it right on the front page right now. And the uh, uh, ad was uh, also reprinted a few days after ours uh, appeared in the Ranger by the Companion newspaper at the uh, McCord Air, For- Air Force Base. And some of you may know that it's now called Joint Base Lewis-McCord. It's just one big, big uh, air base and, and a military army base. The uh, ad was pl- uh, printed with the uh, visual, the uh, picture that we supplied. They just reprinted it, and it had a letter to the airman from the command, so- command master sergeant uh, and the commander of the base. And they had a pretty good, actually, letter talking about the racial issues, and as much as the military can talk about this sort of thing. But it was actually striking that they they chose to run the ad uh, in its entirety. Our ad actually had a, 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 a press release attached to it too, so it explains the context of it. So, and uh, this time to have that sort of thing printed in a base newspapers is really something different. Yes. Yes. Especially since we know that a number of people on active duty as well as in the Guard and the Reserve agree that is really not their place to be out um, confronting uh, protesters that are exercising their constitutional rights. And, and it takes, um, you know, civilians dealing with our, dif- our political differences in order to make a democracy work. Um, the military shouldn't get directly involved in that. So we're not saying that you don't have a right to to act as a citizen, or we're saying as a as the military itself, it, it should not be getting involved. Um, so we want to get to our our guests, but real quick, Mike, how have you been doing? Because this is not like the pandemic is over. No, I mean I'm just uh, I've got a wife who's got a, uh, AFib, and so we we I try and we try and stay uh, quiet and stay away from this. It's, I have to take the dog out twice a day to exercise, which is fine. You know, it's great. And since I'm retired, it's, this is not a stretch at all. We both read a lot. So we've got a house full of books and uh, we write. So it's, it's a good thing. It's actually this today, the governor Inslee uh, said that everybody's supposed to be wearing face masks. And I just came out uh, from walking the dog and it's surprising a number of people who aren't wearing face yeah. masks and, and, and aren't not doing social distancing. Right. Yes. And over 121,000 people have, have died. Yeah. So I've been, I've stayed home mostly, except I have been out to the Capitol Hill organized protest. Um, haven't been out there a lot because I guess it's been going on two or three weeks at this point. Um, I've been out there about five times. I was there uh, last night and people were thinking the police were going to come and clear us, but that didn't happen. And I left. Um, so I don't know what happened tonight, but I do plan to get, try to get back out there sometime tomorrow and see what's going on. And everybody, most everybody's wearing masks. So, and trying to social distance. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear. Yeah. 
The right. thing is, all, the uh, oh, yeah. Cal Anderson Park, which is adjacent to the 12th Avenue, is uh, basically a large homeless encampment now. And uh, yes, the uh, police are sort of trying to talk their way back into their barracks yes. without too much of a... <laughs> yes. That's probably going to happen uh, within the next few days, uh, hopefully peacefully. Yeah, well, we'll see, because I know a lot of the activists said that uh, they weren't going to leave until their demands were, were met. So I don't think that's going to happen in the next few days. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just sad. This is what we have to do to uh, to get justice to for people to be able to live in a peaceful a way that that we deserve as human beings. But this is what we have to do. So. Yeah. And you got to give full credit to I'm, I'm 75 and was involved in the Vietnam protests, but give credit to these young people. They're actually doing something Definitely. that should have been done long, long ago. You know, I, there's a, a lot of white people who are sort of uh, pull, had the wool pulled over their, away from their eyes to see what's really happening in this country, which is a good thing. It's yes. about time. Yes, it is. Well, we could talk about that a lot more. So, but we want to get to our guests. So uh, we appreciate you all listening. And now we'll get on to our guests for this week. Oh, I should say for this month. We only do this each month. Thank you. Thank you, Monique, for coming on to our show. Uh, I really appreciate, appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah. So can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a 9-11 veteran. Um, I actually um, enlisted in 1997 and then uh, served for six years, Was got out, went back in, um, and then finished my, my second enlistment and then um, had been out for three and a half years and was then reactivated um, when the Iraq war uh, started. Um, so when I, when I went to Iraq, I was sort of like a quote unquote old woman. <laughs> I was, uh, I was actually 30 when I was uh, deployed. And so I did feel like an old woman. <laughs> At 30 is something. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I, I did two tours in Iraq and uh, came back uh, and didn't actively start questioning, um, but knew that I knew that my military service had not been, um, basically felt like my military service had been done in vain. Mm. Uh, did not believe anything that I had done and knew that I was a part of something that was really disgusting, really ugly, and it deeply affected me. Um, was also uh, came back uh, addicted to pain meds and uh, was an alcoholic, experienced homelessness, and then, um, you know, had to do a lot of internal healing, a lot. It was a, it was a hard road. And uh, VFP was part of that healing, Veterans for Peace. And, and as I started to become more politicized, started becoming more outspoken and doing other local actions and also uh, starting to, to realize the connections of the military 
and uh, the destruction happening abroad and also here at home. Wow. That's, that's an amazing story. And you and I have known each other, uh, I don't know how many years now, but quite a few. And, and mm-hmm. you're just such an amazing person. You're a calming person. And so to know your story um, and to know the person that you are and the person that I met many years ago at this point, it's, it's just hard to believe that you went through so much. So I, I really want to honor you. Um, you served in, in two branches. Yes. Yes. I served in the air force and I served in the, in the army. Um, I'd served in the, in the air force for a couple of years and then was discharged for being gay. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the commander, uh, at that time of the squadron, I was in security forces had a wall of shame and, um, Mm. found out that I was queer and, uh, posted my picture basically on this wall of shame. So, um, wow. yeah, it was, it was quite an experience. Um, this was an actual physical wall. It wasn't a, yeah, yeah. It wow. was a physical wall. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and it, and he regularly would do things basically post, um, pictures of airmen on this wall of shame who he believed had somehow disgraced the, the uniform and they generally were women. Okay. I know. I know. It's okay. Uh, well, you can be speechless. I know. I, I yeah. Well, um, see, once again, um, <laughs> yeah. going back to me knowing you and what mm-hmm. you've been through and the person that you are, it's just amazing. So, I, again, I have to praise you and tell you how much I appreciate you because that's a crazy story. So, um, so. What are your thoughts on the movement for Black Lives as a Black person? I mean, you have so many intersections, and um, as all of us do have many, but you have many. So you're a woman, um, you're a member of the LGBTQ community, um, you have an Islamic background, you know, there's so much there. Um, so what are you thinking about the movement? I think it's, it's beautiful. Um, I think you know, in the beauty, obviously, having come from a place of tragedy and violence, um, but to see the strength that folks have brought um, over these last three and a half weeks, um, you, you know, and and here's the thing, right? We're in the middle of this pandemic, and, and, um, and so many folks, especially Black-bodied folks, could have allowed this pandemic to stop them from going into the streets and raising their voices. Um, but the thing is, is that it's the realization of knowing that our bodies are always exposed to uh, quote-unquote pandemics the pandemic of, of, of whiteness, of racism, of hate. Um, and so I believe that, you know, when folks saw and, wa- you know, watched that video of George Floyd and the, and the violent way that he died, that it, it just was so viscerally felt. And, and I think that, you know, he hit that, that, sh- that striking point where people were just like, that's it. 
you know so so there's so much that a body can can take and when you think about the community of of black folks in not only here in you know in new mexico but just across our country and on a global level and you think about the historical trauma and just the constant levels of violence that black-bodied individuals are, are are confronted with on a daily basis you know i think that there was such a an energetic and visceral feel throughout all of our bodies when we saw that video and we watched how George Floyd was killed, that there was no other choice than to physically move out into the streets and raise our voice, um, to physically move together because we, how much have we been holding just within our own lifetimes. And then you multiply that by the generations um, that, you know, of, of the historical pieces of our families and then the, 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 the generational trauma of slavery in this country. So um, I just, every day I am amazed by it. And um, it's also humbling to watch and to hear some of the dialogue and, um, and to see that energy. Right, right. Well, one question I have um, for you um, as a woman, because um, I've heard many women comment, and I want to be clear, um, the comments they've made, they, it's not that they were commenting to diminish what is happening, but they, um, a number of Black women have commented that Black men, the killing of Black men um, is lifted up so much. Um, but then we have other women, um, like when Michael Brown was killed, we have Sandra Bland, for example. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering, uh, what are your feelings about that? You know, your thoughts have, have mm -hmm. has that crossed your mind? Oh, definitely it has. And, and, um, you know, and so when I first heard about that piece, right, about mm -hmm. the, the, um, the the lack of amplification on the the black women who've died it resonated because i mean we we live we know we live in a in a in a uh white privileged construct and and you and i have have talked about like the 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 larger piece of patriarchy right that that exists so it's an example of what happens with patriarchy right the amplification of men and male bodies and um you know what happens to men and the the lessening whether it's consciously or subconsciously of of what happens to women and i for myself when I can remember acutely for myself, I think when I viscerally felt, um, I guess viscerally in the sense of really, of genuinely realizing the fear within my, my body um, was when I read about Sandra Bland and, mm -hmm. and watched that video and thought about um, 
the couple of times that I had been stopped by uh, an Albuquerque police department officer and mistaken for a man. Mm. Um, and it just, I was just, it, it, it was the first time that I consciously was aware of the fear in me and, mm. and, and I took it upon myself to just start looking for the names of women who had been killed by police. I just, and, and that is, that is the thing. I think it's that patriarchy piece that crosses the color lines, so to speak, Mm -hmm. where, um, you know, in our country, we see how men are amplified and we see the treatment of women uh, in a lot of ways, devalued, right? Women are devalued um, in many, many ways, not only just in pay, but um, in healthcare, in education. Um, and and so why wouldn't it affect, right. why wouldn't it affect when it comes to black women and black women dying? Right. Yes. Um, and it's heartbreaking, breaking, um, to the degree patriarchy is uh, such a part of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet there's so little um, acknowledgement of it. And so before we go to the next question, I just want to um, say um, Brianna Taylor's name and a woman I found out about named Atatiana Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Brianna being killed in Louisville and Atatiana uh, Jefferson was killed in her home mm-hmm. um, um, in Fort Worth, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about what's happening. You're in Albuquerque, right? I am. Yeah. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the movement, you know, what you've seen in Albuquerque? And one thing I'm really interested in is this New Mexico Silver Gu- Civil Guard that mm-hmm. I saw in the news. Yes. Um, So like everywhere else in the country, um, Albuquerque uh, has been galvanized and Albuquerque is a, I'll say a unique place. Mm. It's a unique state because of, um, in a lot of ways, the history of of New Mexico. Um, It is a land that belongs to the native indigenous people, um, Puebloan people. And, 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 and in so many ways, um, the Puebloan people are still fighting for their land. And we also are a militarized state here. So uh, not only Kirtland Air Force Base, two other Air Force bases, and then all of the, the uh, Los Alamos labs and, and that piece. And then there's obviously the environmental costs that, that come from that. And, so the, the black population here in New Mexico is extremely tiny. I, mm-hmm. I believe the last time I looked, it was like 3.4, 3.7%. Wow. It's tiny. Yeah. Um, the entire state of New Mexico, I believe, is like 1.2 million people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Bernalillo County alone, I think it's about 850,000 folks. So mm-hmm. um, Everybody's there. Yeah, yeah everyone's here and so the the you know the 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 night that that protests happened in in Minneapolis 
and across many cities is 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 that it happened here and um, a number of the the black organizers uh, have been organizing ever since and uh, some of them are a part of uh, Albuquerque Mutual Aid. Some are with the All African uh, People's Revolutionary Party. Mm. Um, some are with Black Lives Matter. Um, and so they either jointly or individually have organized different events, um, protests, rallies, news conferences. Uh, and in so doing, um, have, I think, as we've seen in many cities, um, a large percentage of, you know, white-bodied individuals have turned out, they, you know, want to do something, so on and so forth. And, um, and a lot of folks don't realize that um, Albuquerque is um, number one in police brutality in the state, in the country. Mm. And wow. um, yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. And so uh, for the last four years wow. and um, and so, be, you know, we're not this large metropolitan city, but the police department here historically um, are just awful is not the word, but they are also outfitted with, um, you know, military weaponry. There is an MRAP for a department that has under a thousand police officers mm -hmm. <laughs> for a city, right? right. So um, every time there is a protest, they come out, riot gear, the MRAP, they bring everything. And um, you brought up the New Mexico Civil Guard. So uh, earlier this week on Monday, um, as statues were being taken down across the country, um, a group of folks uh, along with some native indigenous people uh, wanted to take a statue down in, in uh, old town. It's called old town. It's by the museum and the New Mexico civil guard. They are a group of men uh, and I'm sure they're probably women, but um, when they have come out, it's been, all white men, I shouldn't say all white men, I should correct myself, perceived to be all white men, but you know, they're, they're, there's a large Hispanic population here, and so I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, they're probably Hispanic men, um, a part of this organization. Um, and they have been at every single rally, protest, gathering, you name it, and they come and they are, outfitted in you know military gear they have their rifles their guns brandished uh it is a uh right to carry state as long as you have the documentation and it has long been i not only suspected but proven on many times that they the new mexico civil guard are given leeway to to be present and show up um, and physically, and, and for a lot of folks, rightfully so, they're very intimidating sure. sight to see. And for me, right, I, I don't know about you, but for me, it's like, it's not to say that I'm not intimidated when yeah. I see them. Yeah. It's just, 
it's it's a it's something that oh I recognize that right yeah it's like right. oh I know what that looks like yeah right. <laughs> yeah it's true you're right you, you know <laughs> yeah. it's so true you're right yeah it's a, yeah it's not intimidation I'm not gonna say it's not any fear but it's like okay yeah yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. I mean it's kind of like oh but for the rest of of folks that are out there who've never been in the military, never handled a weapon. Right. It is, it is just like, it's, it's a sight to see and, and very intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so on Monday they, and they came out when this group were in old town uh, in front of the museum, there is a statue of Onyate and the historic, the history. And, and I am, you know, I, I am sure I'm going to miss, pieces of the history but basically the history of Onyate here and and in general is is one of just utter violence toward uh native indigenous Puebloan people Mm. um and uh you know slavery violation you name it and so right so just as there are statues littered throughout our country, um, and I think especially in places like the South, of you know Confederate generals and soldiers uh, glorifying right yeah. who they who they who they are what they did. It's it's there. It is akin here in the state of New Mexico with um, you know uh, conquistadors uh, being. Uh, statues of them being erected and you know the history of of the violence that they they uh did to the people here then being muted out so that Um, guy the person you're talking about they wanted to pull down his name was what onyate and he was a conquistador Um, so it's juan de onyate and um he was um so as yes, Spanish conquistador from from Spain, um, and you know colonist, and uh, wow. yeah, yeah, the 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 history of some of the things he did is just vile, vile. Um, so you know, there's been, and I, I mean, and before, right before all of this with with how the movement has been galvanized, you know, um, indigenous people have been long talking about these statues right. and wanting the removal of them and wanting the history of, to be uh, basically righted around the violence that they have experienced um, as a result of Spanish colonialism. So, so, you know, the Civil Guard, they have been in New Mexico for quite a while. Um, they are made up of um, ex-military members, mm. former law enforcement, right? So, again, mm-hmm. y- you know, that, that culture, mm-hmm. that culture of violence, and, and that idea around protecting, right? Yeah. Protecting. And when the pandemic hit and um, businesses were, were be, that businesses were closed, um, they offered to, to do um, protection for these businesses, you, you know, because, right? So, I, I mean, it just, right. it, it, 
I mean, the whole premise. And, yeah. um, it's and a, so it's a, a, a myth <laughs> It's a narrative, you know, yes. And it's a self image. Yes. That they have to have for themselves. Much for them, everybody yes. else. But yeah. Yes. And, uh, and, and with, with everything happening in different cities and certain governors activating the national guard to confront, you know, unarmed protesters, many, I mean, I think, I think many thought or maybe wanted, uh, the governor here in New Mexico, governor Grisham to maybe do the same. And, um, and you know, the, the national guard is activated, but, but more in a humanitarian type of capacity. Mm. And so she, you know, she said that that she was not going to activate the national guard and, and in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, so they took it upon themselves to come out and, uh, and they would show, and they show up, they would show up every single time. And, and one thing that I remember was, there was one night I was actually um, coming from another organizer's home uh, and I was with someone and we were, there's a street called Central Avenue and it, it's, it stretches from east to west in Albuquerque. And a lot of the demonstrations tend to take place on the street near the university. And we were at this intersection and I looked over to my left and I just see a line of these men and, uh, and cops just, just hanging out, just, mm. you know, mm -hmm. just everything was great. And then I looked, we drove down a block or so, and then there are protesters and then a wall of cops in riot gear. And I just yeah. thought, how interesting, right? Yeah. Um, what, how they perceive violence, right? Who is violent? Right. And, and um, so it was just something that has stuck in my head. Sure. Yeah. Well, two maintainers of the status quo together hanging out. Yes. You know, yes. that's basically what that is. You yes. know, I'm comfortable with you because we just want the same things, don't things. we? <laughs> you know? That's right. That's right. And we're both, you know, they're, they're wearing uniforms as well. Right. So yeah. right. they're, kin. they're kin. They're kin. And they, re you know, they're, they're, they, they, meaning APD, not all of APD, but yeah. you have referred to them as friendlies. Right. So. Right. And we're the hostiles. That's right. That's right. That's that's right. Right. We're the hostiles, the the insurgents. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for taking out the time to talk to us. I know that you're real busy, and um, some of the things we talked about offline before we got on to this, I want to have you back and and talk to you in the future. I appreciate it. I love it, and and thanks again for having me oh, on, Michael. Appreciate it. All right. Okay, uh, James Branham, thank you for joining us today on the uh, VFP 92 radio show, KODX 96.9. Uh, we're doing a show on uh, GI advocacy, and, and we thought that you'd be an excellent choice of 
for an interview. Can you just sort of give us a background to uh, yourself and uh, how this is uh, how this is working with you and uh, what what sort of thing you're doing right now? Sure. Well, thank you, Mike, so much for having me on, and I feel really honored, especially to to get to talk about these issues with people involved with with Veterans for Peace and the work that you've done for so long. So it really means a lot to me. Um, my, my name though, is James Branham. I'm a civilian attorney in Oklahoma. I've been practicing since 2006, and almost all of that legal work, with a few exceptions, has been focused on defending military service members who are either seeking a discharge. Sometimes they are service members who are needing a redress of a grievance. Maybe they've been mistreated in some way, discriminated against. Um, and then I have service members that I represent who are seeking to um, exercise free speech rights. Um, and then finally, some who are facing courts martial for misconduct. And some of that misconduct, it, it means all things that the law defines as wrong. Some of that is misconduct that I don't personally think is wrong, which is refusing to fight in unjust wars. In certain circumstances, though, those are cases I take, but I also, I've done other kinds of cases as well. A pretty good chunk of my cases over the years have been combat veterans who have untreated PTSD and traumatic brain injury and later have other misconduct issues. So it's not directly resistance, but it's still important work because it's often dealing with the unsettled business at war. And that is, if you mess with these folks' brains long enough, they're going to have problems. And it's not right to blow them away. So you'd also ask, though, about how has the current situation affected me? Well, a lot of my work is tied in with the Military Law Task Force, the National Lawyers Guild. And as is, is, um, I, I assume some of the listeners will know, the NLG, we are an anti-capitalist, anti-imperial bar association, uh, the nation's first national interracial bar association. And so the MLTF is a project of that that takes that kind of legal analysis that now applies it to the issues of military and veterans law. And so from our perspective of the MLTF, we see this as a really critical issue for a lot of reasons. Um, and I can go into that more in a moment, but as far as how it's affected us is that with the MLTF, we're getting calls, service members who are in crisis situations. We're also getting referrals from the GI Rights Network and for some of our other part, uh, ally groups who are saying these are situations where a lawyer is needed. And so the MLTF, we, we assign, we have, we have several, several cases where well, someone calls <coughs> in wanting a referral, we can refer them to usually several different attorneys to consider. But these are folks that we have vetted that they know what they're doing, and also they are sympathetic to maybe the political dynamic of some, some of the defendants' cases. And so we have seen an uptick of calls. It has, it kind of goes, it, it does fluctuate some. Since, since, since some of the threatened deployments and activations didn't happen, some of the pressure is off for some, but what we've also encountered is a fair number of people that even if their immediate activation they are supposed to go on got canceled, they now know they need to get out. They don't want to be around for the next time an activation like this happens. And so what we're seeing is that what Trump did with these stupid, 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 ill-thought activations is he has planted the seed in many National Guard members' minds who were willing to fight overseas, who are willing to fight if they saw that national interests were at stake. They were not willing to fight against their own people, particularly people of color. And so a lot of service members, and, and by the way, it's, it's some that are not directly affected right now, people that may not be getting orders right now. Active, this is the active duty, what I'm seeing. But they're seeing 
this is what the military is all about. They're seeing this as this moment of revelation. And so what has happened with these, these kinds of orders is having a bigger effect than just these particular units. It's causing many to question the whole nature of military service, to question the whole nature of the whole, the whole apparatus. And I fundamentally see that as a really, really good thing. And it's, and it's a conversation that needs to be extended, not just to the troops. They, they of course, have to deal with it. It's their, their issue. I, I really believe it has to be spread out. This national question is spread out. And so what's happening is for service members, they are already engaging in a conversation that all of us need to be engaged in, but they, are, they have to deal with it. It's, it's, it's their lives. And so they're engaged in these questions. And so my, the, that's a wonderful thing, but there's also some challenges. There's only so much infrastructure available to take these calls. Um, that, that, that concerns me a lot as far as will we as a movement be ready to respond to this, to the, need, to the needs as it may arise. Another factor that we do not know right now how it's gonna all play out is when we're looking at our very unstable commander in chief and what future stupid missions he may send folks on. And so that's a whole nother factor in all of this. And so at this moment, for instance, the number of people asking questions, seeking assistance, it's a manageable number for the movement. If he does something more cataclysmically stupid, then we may, that's the concern is where, will there be enough infrastructure to support those in need? Uh, you sort of touched on it uh, uh, earlier, but uh, the, uh, the reactions of uh, what our active duty and reserve is telling you. Uh, the other thing I'd like to, maybe you could comment on the, uh, apparently the uh, leadership of the military leadership is quite concerned about this. Veterans for Peace actually placed an ad in the uh, uh, Fort Lewis Ranger, which is an on-base newspaper, which was also picked up by the uh, McCord Air Force Base. And let me show you a picture of this, uh, Ad, it's a, a reverse. I don't know. Can you see that? Uh, my end. Yeah, it's actually sh right on my end. So okay, that's amazing. And uh, what's amazing about it is that actually the newspaper. Uh, uh, I've had some experience going back years. Is you know, uh, shelter half in, in Tacoma, and uh, mm -hmm. that the, the editors of these newspapers, both of them, active duty, uh, you know, military bases, decided to print this. And the one in the Air Force actually had a Letter to the Airman, Equality and Tough Conversations essay that it was included with the thing. So they're, they are very concerned. I mean, I mentioned this earlier to Michael, something like 20 percent of uh, the active duty or military is people of color. Is that your understanding? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, where this goes with uh, these demonstrations is, is something that's it's got to be making the, the, the brass very, very concerned. Well, one of the things that's kind of interesting is, is as this is playing out in, in, in the individual cases we're seeing, one of the things that I'm finding very interesting is the normal script, what happens in resistance cases, is not exactly playing out at this moment in all of the cases. There had, so far, many commanders seem almost puzzled by what to do next, that they, they are not comfortable with this script. They know what to do when someone refused to go overseas in a deployment. Um, they, they had a script, they had, some, they had this game plan. They don't know what to do with this. Also, frankly, guard units have just, it's been a long time since they've had this kind of mission. It just isn't, 
I guess I put it this way. Um, National Guard, there's some different contexts of a National Guard unit compared to an active duty unit. One of them being is that there's a little more of a sense of isolation. So at the company level, in the, Ar in the Army National Guard, say under 100, 100 troops in a given location, they might be meeting with a few other companies for drill weekends, but they're not, it's not like massive active duty post. And so a company commander there, I, I just think that they're in a kind of difficult spot. And then as you go up the chain of command, we're, are, we're seeing the amount of pushback we're seeing from the top brass. And you have to know, and, and I know both of you know this well, but the brass usually does not ever say anything in a direct kind of way. They don't. They usually say things in a sideways way, if they do it at all. They're always wanting to project the image, at least, that other than being for the mission, whatever it is, the other thing they're wanting to send out is political neutrality, and we are in, in support of the community, uh, wherever the base is at. Those are their main missions. They don't know what to do with this, because it hits, because in their own communities, people are protesting. In, in military communities, they don't know what to do with that. And so... Another factor that's been interesting is that there's been a significant amount of involvement in the Black Lives Matter protests by active duty and reservists, just not in uniform. And thank goodness for there's some legal reasons for that. Um, military service members, by the way, are free to protest in the U.S. under the, under the regula regulations and court rules. The rule is you have to be out of uniform, off duty, see, out of uniform, off duty, out, um, not outside the United States, not at a protest that could turn into a riot, that's likely to turn into a riot. And again, most peaceful protests, that is not an issue. And then finally, you can't uh, say contemptuous words about your the command chain, including our idiot president. So um, that's what you can't do. That leaves a lot of room for a lot that you can do. And so a lot of active duty and reservists are going to the protest. And here's what's interesting. The commanders know about it. And the commanders are not trying. There's, there's some exceptions. I've heard some stories of NCOs and commanders telling people, no, you shouldn't go. This could turn into a riot. Uh, it's happening a little bit. It's not happening much. For the most part, commanders know this and they're okay with it. Because at the end of the day, even these folks in an institution that I fundamentally feel is unjust and, and, and problematic, at the very least, even in this institution, there are good people there. Even good NCOs and officers are saying, you know what, the protesters, they're making sense. They want to listen. And so this is such, to me, such, such a situation that's pregnant with possibilities of what could come, of the kind of social change that's, that's possible. Well, just real quick, I think part of it is that there is a real social change, a consciousness changing moment right now. Mm -hmm. And that includes the military because the military reflects society. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think they don't know what to do with it because they're questioning, I'm saying the commanders, because like you said, people in their communities are protesting and they're having somewhat of a change of consciousness themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and don't forget... Um, Michael Brown's death and the uprising in Ferguson, the National Guard was um, was deployed there. So we had like mm. a precursor to this. That's and, true. Yeah. And so um, this is it's a continuation of that awakening. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to, I really think that that's impacted this quite quite a bit. Well, and you know, you make a very good point about the past. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go completely misspoke. I said there haven't been that many controversial deployments. Actually, there have been because we have Ferguson, we have the border activations. 
One of the challenges, though, that they do seem to space these out just enough to keep them from, keep us from connecting the dots. They're not doing it often enough. But more and more, what I am seeing some hope in is that maybe more of us will be connecting the dots. And maybe as we're seeing these kind of social changes hit them. It, to me, the other very hopeful thing is, is that we saw this as it relates to LGBT um, issues, the military. For the most part, the rank and file folks, um, they, they, were, they were okay with gay folks. It was, what the problem was, every, it was the NCOs, they kept saying, oh, there's gonna be problems. The officers said that. Most of the privates just didn't care. And that's what I heard over and over again. In the, 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 at, at the lowest level, the young folks, they were way ahead of, of folks of the older generations. And so my hope is in this situation too, that maybe there's such a massive tidal wave of change, the military itself is gonna change. Now, the problem is, of course, you still, the underlying root mission of the military, you, there's only so much you can, I mean, it's kind of like the police force, to be frank. Is there some way to responsibly reform the police force? Can you responsibly reform the military? That's, you know, that's, that's more than I know what to do with. What I can say is that there is some change coming. And I think one of the things may be very interesting as it plays out in practical terms for people resisting right now is that it may lead to a certain degree of unpredictability and outcome. The way these cases may be handled now may be very different than they are handled down the road or how they're handled in the past. And so that's another interesting, complex, but also complicating factor. Uh, I, the National Guard, as we all know, is, is actually exempt from the posse comitatus laws because they're run by the state governments and more likely to be deployed than, say, active duty military. But on the other hand, uh, somebody else has said that they, uh, I mean, because the National Guard are, you know, citizen soldiers of sorts, although many of them actually have been to war, that they're more likely to actually object to being put on the streets and uh, in a police function disciplining protesters, as opposed to the active duty people who are probably not likely to be deployed uh, outside of what Trump does. But you know the active uh, national the active duty forces in the states are probably not going to be on the streets, but the national guard are. You know, one thing that was very interesting how things played out in the last recently in D.C. because in D.C. here is the challenge um, that for um, for Trump he was wanting troops to be on the street. The military brass did not want active duty troops to be there. Um, However, to get state troops from another state, there, there are some political complications there. So what they ended up doing was sending the DC National Guard. And the reason was the, the command chain for the DC National Guard goes directly to the Secretary of the Army and then directly to the President. Yeah. And so it's a way of circumventing the normal safeguards. Now the problem was is that those, those very few DC National Guard troops, and they were, they, they had, they were given very clear instructions that if you can't hold this in, then, then the 82nd Airborne is just across um, very close to DC and ready to come in. So they felt a great deal of pressure to maintain a certain level of whatever. Um, and the stories where we've heard from the DC National Guard members is that they were put in some crazy situations they were ill-equipped for. There were troops being order, given orders to drive heavy equipment in civilian areas who were not properly trained or licensed to drive heavy equipment, just stupid stuff. 
Um, and so what I'm finding, what I'm finding so interesting though, is, is that we're now seeing a breakdown of some of the normal chain of command issues where that now the military itself, and I'm glad that they are not necessarily obeying every letter of the law coming down from Trump right now, but it's been a long time since you've had the military directly operating crossways of a sitting president. Thankfully at this moment they aren't. Um, probably the, the last time this has happened, I can recall the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the, the point where that that Kennedy was actually going, make, basically communicating to the ships that were on the blockade directly because he didn't trust his own chain of command. He, he thought his chain of command would try to, to, to start something up. Uh, that's the kind of dynamic we're playing with now. This is a very... It's also, frankly, terrifying. There's so many things that could go wrong in these kind of scenarios. But we are looking at a breakdown of the normal chain of command of how things are supposed to work. And that's going to lead to maybe some good outcomes, but it also lead some bad outcomes. It could lead to violence. It could lead to also service members being mistreated. That's always always a real risk. Right. Um, so could you tell us what what advice you would give service members um, right now, if any of them are listening? Sure. I would first say that that being proactive is a very good thing right now. It is easy to say, hey, things looked bad for a while, it's better now, move on. I would suggest that you have to assume that this kind of crap is going to come up again. If not now, in the near future, a little bit further down the road. And so I would argue that being proactive, asking tough questions now makes a lot of sense. After that, if you have specific concerns that you're wanting to, and particularly if you're the place saying, I really want to get out, but I want to get out the right way, contact the GI Rights Hotline. And um, the GI Rights Hotline are just phenomenal folks. It's a, a national net, network of nonprofit, non-government organizations that provide this kind of counseling work. By the way, their number is 1-877-447-4487. Their website is girightshotline.org. That's a good starting place. Other groups, though, you may want to consider contacting. If someone is having questions about morality and conscience, questioning whether they can do this, I'd suggest Center on Conscience on War. Their web address would be centeronconscience.org. Um, and then beyond that, if you're just wanting someone to talk to, sort out what you're feeling, um, two groups have strong uh, Veterans for Peace, of course, and also About Face Veterans Against the War. They have peer counseling support and some other ways, um, just of having spoke to, been through what you're going through, asking the same kind of questions. And finally, I have to mention Courage to Resist. They're an organization I work with a lot. They provide support in a variety of ways to military resistors of all kinds. And if you're in the place of saying, I don't want to do this, and I'm ready to fight back, to use all means within my disposal to try to ethically, responsibly get out of the situation, uh, getting in touch with them is always a good thing. So there's a lot of folks in your corner. There's a lot of resources out there that I would suggest more than anything, be proactive. And also the other last thing I would say is, you know, I'll say two more things. Uh, one thing I'll mention is that uh, don't believe the gossip mill in your unit. A lot of times the gossip mill gets going and you hear this, that, and the other may or may not be true. Uh, a lot of the threats of what could happen if you do X, Y, or Z just is not true. The more you get outside objective information, the better. And then finally, one thing I'd always suggest to anyone who's sorting through big questions is if you're able to start writing things down, and that does a few good things for you. One is if you end up in a conscientious objector case or in other kinds of cases, 
you keeping a journal of what you're feeling, what you're going through is very helpful evidence. But also it can just be helpful for you to sort out your feelings to be able to do some writing. So that's, those would be what I'd say as starting points. Well, thank you for your comments. Uh, you know, the, you sort of touched on it already, but it seems to me, particularly for lower ranking enlisted, the contradiction between lawful orders and their oath of enlistment, which says that you support the Constitution uh, and defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that sort of contradiction is is a is a um, is a uh, tough thing to reconcile in the case of sort of protesters and uh, using some, perhaps even using force on them. Absolutely. One of the challenging things about that, though, from a legal standpoint, is the military under military law. If you disobey an unlawful order, you can't be punished for that. The problem is the military has also said that the presumption is that all orders are lawful, which means if you, are, if you disobey an order, you must prove that the order was unlawful to be excused from that. That's a very difficult thing. And so I, I would never – so my advice to someone who's facing the kind of situations is to talk to a lawyer because there are some legal risks. On the other hand, there comes a point we all have to say we have to choose to do the right thing, and we have to make those tough decisions. All right. Well, thank thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Uh, this yeah. is great information, and uh, we yeah, make very interesting. Thank Fantastic. you. That's it, Seattle. That's the end of the show. Thanks again to Monique and James. Before we go. Let me give credit where credit is due. Our theme music, Untouchable, and the transition music, Spanish Winter, are from The Passion Hi-Fi. You can find him at thepassionhi-fi.com. Tune in next time. We air every fourth Wednesday of the month, 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific Time at KODX 96.9 or KODXSeattle.org. So until then... Stay in the struggle, par to the peaceful.